All right, let's take our Bible tonight, and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1 through verse 5. Um, this will be our text, and we're going to look at a couple other texts and then come back to this as well. Uh, but we're continuing our studies, our study on uh, pillars of a biblical church, which is a focus on uh, the five solas of the Reformation. And these essentially are doctrinal, doctrinal convictions that Uh, I believe are foundational to a biblical church upholding the gospel and its truth, especially in a day and age when there's so much compromise to the gospel. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at Christ alone, Christ alone. And I know for all of us us who have been in church most of our life, this is somewhat elementary for us, Um, but I believe that we as Christians, we're in need of hearing the gospel. We'll always be learning the gospel and growing in the gospel. And I want to point out maybe some some fundamental things that we see in this doctrine uh, that uh, is beneficial for us. And so 1 Corinthians chapter number 2 and verse 1 through 5 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And when we think about the gospel, what is the heart of the gospel? Well, the heart of anything is the most important part, isn't it? You can think about your own body. We all have our physical heart, and Without our heart, we don't live. It's what pumps blood to our organs and keeps us functioning and gets oxygen to the brain, and uh, it's what keeps us living. And so without your heart, you're literally dead. You, you're, you're done. I mean, you, you have to have that to live. And like the heart is to the body, so is Christ to the gospel. And without Christ, there is no gospel. Now, there's a lot of gospel talk in our day, but when you study and look at some of the gospel talk that happens in our culture you'll find that Christ is nowhere to be found. He's disconnected from a lot of the things that go under his name. Now, this brings us to the second of the five solas, which uh, was was brought about in in Latin terms of solus Christus. That means Christ alone. So I'm just going to say Christ alone uh, because we speak English, don't we? Uh, But you'll see this in circles of Christianity where they'll, they'll use these terms, and so you know what they mean. They're easy to pick out. But like the rest of them, this, this sola is the pillar of Christianity as a whole and also a pillar of the local church. And truly, I believe this pillar, Christ alone, it is the most central of them. While Scripture alone is the foundation to us knowing the rest of them, uh, without Christ, we have nothing, right? We, we learn of truth through the word of Christ. It comes from Him. We're saved by the grace of Christ. We have faith in Christ. And Uh, The glory of God is centered and manifested through Christ. And so he's the centerpiece to our Christianity. He's the centerpiece to our local church. And so Christ alone proclaims this, that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ, no one else, and nothing more added in addition to him and what he has done. He fulfills the entirety of what is needed for salvation. He alone is our prophet our priest, and our king, his three offices that he uh, uh, fulfills. Now, we who are brought up and are faithful to abide by the Scriptures, we know this truth, and it's, it's fundamental to us.
But there are many in our world who do not believe that Christ and his redemptive work are enough. There are many who will say that they do, but yet they still distort the gospel and message of salvation. And there are many more who are deceived into adding unto Christ uh, other things, rather than it just being Christ alone. Uh, By way of example, we've talked a little bit about Roman Catholicism, because that was what tied in with the Reformation era. The Roman Catholic Church in history, and still today, adds many things to the gospel of Christ. To them, the church is the doorway, not Christ. The Pope is the vicar of Christ and head over the church. Uh, Mary is a co-mediator with uh, Christ and an intercessor. You imagine being raised in such traditions and that's all you knew, but then you come to Scripture and realize none of that's in there. And so that's essentially what you find happening in the Reformation era is that you have God bringing certain men uh, to the truth of the gospel, realizing how corrupt that church was. And really, I wouldn't even call it a church. It's just... When you look at Roman Catholicism, it's basically paganism with biblical names is what it boils down to. Uh, so the sad truth is for the Roman Catholic Church, that's, that's how they abide, but it's also a sad truth for modern evangelical churches. There's an ignorance of who Christ is. There's an ignorance of his sacrifice and what it accomplished. What really did he die for? And why Christ alone, plus nothing and minus nothing, is our salvation. And this is why in our text here, Paul says this, and this is what I want to emphasize as we come back to it. He says, I decided, in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I want us to review and look at a summary, I guess, today. Uh, We could spend forever just talking about Christ. He's inexhaustible. But I want to point out some overarching truths as to why Christ alone is so essential Notice in our notes tonight, number one, that Christ alone is the person of salvation. He is the person of salvation. So why is he alone the person of salvation? This is what gets the world up in arms, right? They think that Christianity is too exclusive. We leave no room for Allah or Muhammad or any of the other religions. Why are we so narrow-minded, as they say? Well, it's because of who Christ is. Um, He alone really is the person of salvation. It's not that we're trying to exclude and say, oh, we're better than you. We're just saying the truth. Jesus is all there is. And there is no God but the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. So we look at who Jesus is. The first aspect that is essential to him being the only person of salvation is letter A, he is the son of God being fully divine or fully God. He is God. He is divine. Now, why is it important that the Savior of men be divine? Well, because nothing and no one less than divinity can truly save sinful men. I mean, that's the, that's the point of salvation in the first place, right? We need to be saved by someone greater than us. And so man cannot save himself from his sinful condition or relieve himself of his condemnation. And so man must have someone greater than himself be the Savior. Now, we look at the world around us and we see many varying religions and cults. And it's a sad thing. Millions upon millions of people look to a particular person or religious figure as the foundation of their faith or maybe in addition to Jesus with their faith. For instance, I mentioned Roman Catholicism. They lean heavy on the Pope and the priests and Mary. Mormons lean heavy upon Joseph Smith and other prophets in addition to Jesus. They'll still tag Jesus along, uh, but they want others in, 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 in connection to him. 
It, you, you look at uh, Muslims who lean upon Muhammad as their prophet from Allah, Buddhists leaning on the teachings of Buddha. And when it comes down to it, any form of salvation that rests in man is a failed salvation. It doesn't, doesn't work. All men of Adam's line, no matter how religious or influential they may be, are by nature sinfully depraved and condemned before the Holy One. So all of these other religions and cultic groups that uh, look for ways outside of Christ, uh, they have no hope because they are still simply just men in religious circles. And here's the reality, is that man has no power to change his nature or undo his dilemma. He can't escape his depravity. Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 13, 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? I mean, that's, that's the description of humanity in a broad sense. So when it comes to salvation, only God can satisfy the demands of God. Only God can satisfy the requirements of salvation. And so mankind must have a divine Savior, and this divine Savior is Christ alone. So how do we see Jesus as divine? Well, just to give you a few brief points here, uh, firstly, Jesus possesses the attributes of God. Now, we could look at many of the attributes of God, and I love the attributes of God as you study them and you dive into them. God is eternal. He's immutable. He's holy. He's omnipresent, omnipotent. He's uh, omniscient. He's all-wise. He's good. He's righteous and loving. I mean, so many attributes we can look at, and in Christ, we see these glorious attributes of God. To name just a couple, he is eternal, having always existed. I love how John opens his gospel. He takes us beyond just the uh, announcement of the birth of Jesus. He, he takes us back to eternity past, and, and he says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, uppercase W, that's Jesus. He's the eternal living Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and so right there, he establishes that Jesus, he's not just a mere man, but rather he is the eternal living God. Uh, you come on down and you see another example is that Jesus is immutable, meaning he always is the same in his character and nature. Hebrews 13.8, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, time wouldn't allow us to go into everything here. We're, we're trying to focus on a central point. But nevertheless, the truth is irrefutable that Christ is divine. I like this quote from John Wolver. He says in his book on Christ, he says, The evidence of Scripture is so complete that one who denies the deity of Christ must necessarily reject the accuracy of the Scriptures. And that's essentially what you see. Um, and there are many who would try to deny the deity of Christ today. Uh, secondly, Jesus is equal to God. He's not less than God the Father, but he's in equal standing with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He said in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. Now, do you remember what the reaction was to that statement by those who heard him? What happened there? Well, the Pharisees took up stones and wanted to kill him, right? And so man is appalled by the idea of Jesus being divine. The same is true today. I mean, there's so many that get angry at the thought of Jesus being divine. But nevertheless, it requires that he is divine, not only because Scripture teaches it, but we can only have a divine Savior. Thirdly, Jesus' life and ministry prove him to be God. No one could do or accomplish what Jesus did except he is indeed God. 
Jesus says in John 5, 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, what do those works do for him? They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, that he has come from God and that he is God. His works and his ministry, they testify that he's not some mere mortal man. Who, what man can raise the dead? What man can walk on water? What man can uh, heal the blind and the lame and the leper? And so both the Old and New Testaments make undeniably clear that Jesus is divine. Christ alone is the Son of God being fully divine. And so his divinity makes Christ alone the person of salvation. But not only that, notice secondly in this, under this heading, letter B, he is the Son of Man being fully human. He is the Son of Man being fully human. Now, we love to focus in on the deity of Christ. I mean, I love that topic. But I think sometimes we focus so much on that that we forget about his humanity. His humanity is a rich study in itself. And so while the Savior of men must be divine, it was also necessary that he be human for the purposes of meeting the demands of God to save men. The combination of two natures in one person, divine and man, it's impossible in the realm of us mortals, right? But as we mentioned earlier, all those men of other religions, they were human, but none of them were divine and human. They lacked two essential qualities. One, sinlessness. They have an, a condemned nature uh, from Adam. They lack a perfect nature. Two, they lack divinity, the very essence of what it is to be God. You see, there is no salvation except through God. And so the divinity of Christ makes the humanity of Christ absolutely sinless and holy. So he's entirely unique and separate from us uh, in this realm of being both God and man. And this is the foundation of man's need for salvation that we have to see. Now, why must the Savior of men be sinless as a human? Well, that's because you and I, in our own nature, we're the ones who are sinful. We are full of sin. Sin has permeated and plagued all mankind and enslaved him in a hopeless condition. We know that this flows from our first parent, Adam, right? God commanded Adam in the very beginning not to disobey him by taking the fruit. We know the story, how it goes. He took the fruit, and what, what happened with that? Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So that, that created a domino effect that is woven into the very nature of us. As David said in Psalm 51, uh, in sin, my mother did conceive me. We're, we're born with that nature. We don't have to learn how to sin. We just do it. That's how we live. It's what we're built with. So you examine your life and the life of any other, and you see unmistakably that sin permeates mankind. It permeates individuals, permeates congregations, all institutions, all nations. There's none in this world that is righteous before God. And that presents a major problem for us. Why? God demands perfection. He will take nothing less than that. You know, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, God demands perfection. And so Christ, since Christ is divine, his humanity did not have the nature of sin like the rest of us, like the rest of humanity. Though Jesus is the eternal word, 
we find in humility he came into this world in a miraculous way so that he could take on flesh without having the same fallen flesh that we have. John 1.14, out of that same chapter where he quoted earlier that, that in the beginning was the Word, back into eternity past. But then he comes down to verse 14. I love this verse. The Word became flesh. This eternal person, Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son of the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so He was born in this world, conceived of a virgin, as we know, the Virgin Mary. And through this miracle... He was given a human body while being kept secure from partaking in the Adamic nature. Now, this is what theologians would call the hypostatic union. It means there's two natures in one person. Two glorious natures in one person, fully God and fully man. And as such, what has Jesus done? He lived entirely sinless. Now, I don't know about you, that's hard for me to fathom. Is it hard for you to fathom? I mean, we sin every day. It's our nature to sin. But there's not any point in Christ's life where he ever had any sin. Not one trace, not one iota of sin in him. Everything he did from his infancy to his death, sinless, sinless. I mean, even, even babies know how to sin, right? If you don't believe me, come stay with Spurgeon for a night, and you're going to see clearly... I mean, he's cute as can be, but he's a filthy little sinner. That's just, just how he is, okay? They, they learn how to lie when they're that young. I mean, they learn how to just try to get their way when they're that young. And, and that's, you, you don't have to teach kids how to sin, right? But when it, when it comes to Jesus, imagine having a sinless baby. Mary and Joseph raising this sinless child, and he's just absolutely perfect in all he does, everything he did. So, so Jesus tells his opposers, his challengers in John eight forty six, which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? They couldn't convict him of sin. Even at his trial, what did they have to do? They had to bring in liars, right? They brought in people who, who were intentionally there to try to bear false witness against him, to make up what they could. And even with that, Pilate, the one they brought him to, you remember what he said in the judgment of Jesus? John 19, 4, he brought Jesus out before them, and here's what he told him. He said, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. Pilate looks at Jesus, questions him, examines him. There's nothing in him worthy of death. And so with this sinless life, Jesus truly satisfied the Father's demands for a perfect life. He has pleased the Father, something that's impossible for us. Paul said in Romans 8, we in our flesh, it's impossible to please him. We don't please him. But yet Jesus pleased him. Imagine hearing these words from heaven in Matthew 3, 17 as baptism. The father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Never for any other man has that ever been spoken except for Jesus. None in all of history. And so with his life, Hebrews author describes him in Hebrews 4.15. He's talking about him as our great high priest. He says, he is the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. So with this truth, 
Only Jesus qualifies as the person of salvation. This union of deity and humanity in one person was not only essential for the sinless life of Jesus, but we'll find that this union of these two natures is also the only way that the demands of God's justice could be met. So that brings me to number two tonight. Notice that Christ alone has provided salvation. He has done what is required for man to be saved. So when we look at this, this takes us to what Paul is focusing on in our text, right? What did he say he's focusing on? He says, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ, that's the person of who he is, and what? Him crucified. So who Jesus is and his death, and his death. So, so why is it that the death of Christ on the cross is the focal point of our salvation and our message? Well, I want to summarize this in two brief things. I could, we, we could go all day about this because there's so much that happens by way of the cross. But here's what I want to focus on. Firstly, that his death alone brings satisfaction to God's justice. His death alone brings satisfaction to God's justice. And so at the center of salvation of man is the death of Christ on the cross. When it comes to the cross, when we look at it in Scripture, but we also look at it in the realm of the world, when it comes to the cross, how's the world perceive the cross? It's an offense to the world. It's an offensive thing to them. They look at it with disgust and they disapprove of such kind of language, right? Well, what did, what did Paul say concerning the preaching of the cross? He said in 1 Corinthians 118, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I mean, that is so contrasted in our society, right? I, I mean, I see and we see the power of the preaching of the cross and we rejoice in it, but to the, to the worldly person, they look at it as like, what a foolish thing. I mean, outside looking in, it does seem kind of foolish. Why is that guy standing up there behind a pulpit yelling about a guy who died 3,000 years ago on a cross when there are several people who died on crosses, right? Just the concept of that looks foolish to them, and then by their nature, they reject that message. But we who know Christ, we see the power of it. We know the power of it because that power penetrated us. It changed us. It saved us. So this is this folly is evident among even, even professing believers and scholars. One theologian stated this, and I'm going to quote this. His name's William Neal, but listen to what he says. I would doubt his Christianity just by what he says, but he claims to be a theologian. Those who hold to the fire and brimstone school of theology, who revel in ideas such as that Christ was made a sacrifice to appease an angry God, or that the cross was a legal transaction in which an innocent victim was made to pay the penalty for the crimes of others, a propitiation of a stern God, find no support in Paul. These notions came into Christian theology by way of the legalistic minds of the medieval churchmen. They are not biblical Christianity. I read that statement, I thought, this guy can't be regenerate. Nevertheless, how has he, has he ever read Paul? I'm going to point out to you in just a minute that this is entirely what the gospel is about, right? And how absurd a statement this is, but herein is the problem. There are many, quote-unquote, Christians and evangelicals today who have no understanding of the cross whatsoever. And that is the permeating problem in a lot of local churches, is an unregenerate 
church membership because the cross has not been preached. Christ alone has not been preached for what it truly means and what the message is. Nor do they understand the nature of God and man. So for us to truly understand the death of Jesus on the cross, we have to understand the character of God and the seriousness of man's sin. And here's the reality that is often sidestepped in modern gospel presentations. And it's this truth is that we as sinners, we have offended the infinitely holy God with our sin. We have offended the infinitely holy God with our sin, and we have no clue how deep that goes. We fail to realize that. We place ourselves, we have placed ourselves under his divine wrath, and we cannot escape that. The Bible tells us in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, every ounce of it, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, I read, I read in a devotional this morning from Stephen Charnock, and he was diving into the omnipresence of God. And the reality, the fact that God is in every place at all times and knows the deepest caverns of our hearts. There literally is nothing hid from him. And so every ounce of ungodliness treasures up wrath for the day of judgment. And so understand that wrath, it's a personal matter to God. God is personally offended at sinful men, and he is angry with them. Now the message today is often God is love, 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 but you understand that, that there's so much imbalance there. God is holy, holy, holy. Scripture never says that in the realm of the thrice speaking like that, love, love, love. But it does say he's holy, 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 right? It also says that he is angry with the wicked every day. And so if man is ever to be reconciled to God, God's wrath must be satisfied. But that's an impossibility for man to do himself. A true question that, that Bildad asked Job, and I know his friends were, were, were kind of off the rails sometimes, but every now and then they say a true question. But here's a true question in Job 25, 4. How then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? That's a real question. How is it possible for us to be just before a holy God and God still be, uh, how, can us be how can we be free and right with him when, he, and when his wrath must be satisfied? And the answer is in the person of Christ in his death. And here's what, Paul, here's what John says, and you'll see this in other passages. 1 John 4.10, I love this verse. It's in your notes. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation. Now, we don't use that word a whole lot, right? What is a propitiation? The Greek term here has a simple definition. It refers to appeasement, necessitated by sin. That it is a satisfaction, an appeasing of the wrath of God. So, so what does he say here? He says that Christ himself, Jesus himself, is the propitiation, the appeasement of, for our sins. So by his death on the cross, that is what he is. And why is it that Jesus alone can be that? How can he be that? Well, it's because he is sinless, the only one worthy to bear the sins of another upon himself. 
None of us have that capability because we have our own sin to bear. Only the innocent can bear the sin of the guilty. But secondly, when we look at the cross, Christ genuinely took upon him the wrath of God for sin. This is the message of the cross. Is that when he's there and he dies in agony, in darkness, that through that transaction, he bore the cup of God's wrath. He bore it. He drank it to the full. He took the full measure of God's wrath for the sins of his people. And so by taking the cup of God's wrath upon himself, propitiation was made. Now, there's a couple different Greek words here that are used to translate for propitiation, the English word propitiation. But I thought it interesting that you'll find that uh, one word is translated as propitiation in Romans 3.25, in Rome of our salvation. But that same Greek term in Hebrews 9.5 is translated as mercy seat. Mercy seat. We know what the mercy seat is, right? Takes us back to the Old Testament. What's so significant about it? Well, the mercy seat was the lid that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant that sat in the Holy of Holies, the most restricted place, the place of God's uh, presence where he would meet uh, on the Day of Atonement. And on that great Day of Atonement, the high priest carried blood from a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat. And through that, he made propitiation or appeasement for the sins of himself and the sins of the people. And so by this blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, God's wrath was appeased. See, there at the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, that is where judgment and mercy met together. Judgment and mercy met together. And the only thing that ratified that judgment and mercy is the blood that was given on that mercy seat. And here's what we find, is that this is exactly what Christ has done on the cross, except it was not the sacrifice of an animal, because the animal sacrifices were never good enough to permanently wash away our sins, were they? If they were, we'd still be doing that today. But they weren't. This propitiation could only be accomplished through the death of a man, an innocent man, because the blood of animals was never good enough to wipe away sins. Hebrews 10 foretells us it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only the perfect blood of the eternal God in flesh would secure redemption forever for us. And that is how he is pictured and portrayed, right? Remember John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on the scene, what did he preach and declare? Behold the what? Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9.12, Scripture says of Christ, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing... Eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. So nothing less than the death of Christ with the shedding of blood would satisfy the demands of God's wrath. And this is another complaint of modern critics of Christianity, right? It's such a bloody religion. Well, life has to be given in place of sin, right? The wages of sin is death. Where is life? The life of the flesh is where? In the blood. And so Hebrews also expands on that and tells us in Hebrews 9.22, 
Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so as we think about Christ, and I was brought to a fresh, just, just, just coming back to looking at the gospel again. I, I love when that happens, because sometimes you get in your routine, and you just kind of keep going, but then God brings you back to a, a humbling moment where you're seeing the cross afresh. I had one of those this morning. I just had to break down and cry and thank the Lord for the blood of Christ. As I think about what is taking place on the cross, the transaction, the blood that he is shedding on behalf of me, behalf of me. And it was this sacrifice, above all other sacrifices ever given, that pleased God and appeased his wrath. And Paul, Paul speaks of Jesus' death saying this in Ephesians 5.2, how that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God was pleased with the offering of his son. And so this act of propitiation is the reason that Paul focused his message on Christ alone and him crucified. There is no other message of salvation but the cross. Notice with the letter B that his death alone is a substitution, giving us justification. Not only is it satisfaction of God's justice, it is also a substitution that gives us justification. So we look at Christ on the cross, accomplish redemption for his people, understand it was a specific substitutionary death by which every sin of his people was placed upon him so that he would satisfy God's wrath upon those sins. Now, we certainly can't fathom such a transaction, but yet it is true. This is penal substitution. This is a legal transaction where Christ is bearing the sins of his people so that they can go free. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Look with me at a passage of Scripture that I think so clearly demonstrates this, and it's in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 and verse 1 through 6. This is truly, actually, the most vivid description of the suffering of Christ. Another great one is Psalm 22. It has a great description of the suffering of Christ. But look at the substitutionary language that's given here. Let's just read verse 1 through 6. The whole chapter is good, but for time's sake, I'm not going to do that. But I want you to notice that little word, our, O-U-R. Our means us, belongs to us. Look at this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now notice as we come to verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You notice how Christ is dying not for his griefs or his sorrows or his transgressions. It's all about me and you. Ours. Such deep and dreadful suffering that he endured in that death. Now consider for a moment that one sin is worthy of eternal hell. And yet on the cross, he bore the innumerable sins of his people. That's hard for me to fathom. Steve Lawson comments on this and says, Upon the cross, Jesus suffered in our place, bearing our sins, that we might never stand in judgment for them. I'll never be able to fathom that kind of transaction, yet it's true. So we think of Christ satisfying the justice of God and his death being a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. Why is it then that not all are saved and still sinners perish in their sins? Well, the answer is that the atonement is only effectual to those who believe. It doesn't, it's not effectual to every person. Only those who by faith come to believe in him. He died for all who will believe, those who are indeed his people, as it was said of him. And so we understand that it is only those who believe who partake in the justification that the cross brings. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Who is it that is justified? Only those who believe. And who are those who believe? Those whom God draws. Those who he brings to himself. So while the message of the cross extends to the whole of humanity, it is only applied to the believer. And so we understand that on the cross, Christ knew that he was dying to truly save his people. He was not dying in hopes that maybe some will come. That there's a possibility that some might get saved. No, he died to secure salvation. He is not a savior who fails in his mission. He actually does what he sets out to do. And so Jesus said this before his death. And to his disciples in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I heard somebody say it this way, and I'm just going to keep saying it. Jesus paid it all, and he's going to get all he paid for. He didn't shed his blood to pay for something he's not going to get. His blood is too costly. And what is the transaction that takes place unto those who believe? It is the forgiveness of their sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They are justified before their holy God. They are legally given freedom from their sin and its guilt and condemnation. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you understand, my sin gets transferred to Christ. His righteousness is transferred to me. What grace that is, friend. Only Christ has done that. And Paul wrote to the believers, forgiveness, that, that he quotes David in Romans 4, verse 7 through 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
See, through the provision of Christ alone, you and I have been granted such freedom and pardon and forgiveness. And we truly will never fathom the depth of suffering that Christ endured, the fact that he has done that to make us like unto himself. Well, the early church fathers, Irenaeus, said this, for the sake of his infinite love, he has become what we are in order that he might, may make us entirely what he is. A transaction that took place at the cross. But do you see why Paul's focus is where? Christ, him crucified. Christ, him crucified. No person or institution can do or has done what Christ alone has done. And that is why Christ alone is the gospel. It is the pillar of the church. That brings me to number three, and I'll try to be quick here. Christ alone is to be preached for salvation. Christ alone is preached. He's the person of salvation. He's the provider of salvation. So he must be preached. And that brings us to our original text in Second or 1 Corinthians 2, 2. He says, again, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is Paul's conviction. He will not budge off this conviction. Neither will I. I know Harold won't either. And Jared won't either. You know Christ and the gospel. This is the conviction. This is what we preach. No matter, no matter if we have big crowds or not, whether few get saved or many get saved, whether we're cursed or praised, Christ must be preached. He alone is forgiveness of our sins. Paul didn't care about what the Corinthians might have wanted to hear. He cared about what they needed to hear. What all men need to hear is the gospel of Christ alone. Martin Luther put it this way, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. And herein is a major issue with today's Christianity. Far too many want to tag Jesus in their message, but their message is not Jesus itself, himself. There is a watering down of the gospel. By taking away or adding unto the work of Christ. We read in Galatians 1, and I won't go there for time's sake, but there's the reference for you, how that Paul is somewhat shocked that they've been moved away from the gospel that they had heard, that God had called them to. From the Judaizers, they were adding, wanted to add the law of Moses and circumcision to the gospel. And, and, and Paul comes to tell them, he says, if anyone preaches to you a different gospel than that you've heard, let him be accursed. He goes on to say, even if it comes from an angel, let him be accursed. And what do we find? There's a lot of gospels out there that have come about through men who have distorted it, but even they claim from angels, right? Somebody needs to read Galatians. Men emphasize Jesus. Many emphasize Jesus, but only a Jesus who panders to their carnal desires and religious approval. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this and says, To the extent that Christ and his cross are no longer central, modern evangelicalism has become a movement shaped only by popular whim and sentimentality. And that is exactly what you find in a lot of Christian circles. But what did the Corinthians need more than anything? They needed the message of Christ. The cross of Jesus must be central to our message and our mission because it is only the gospel that will save Sinners, and you and I have nothing to be ashamed of with the cross of Jesus. We rejoice in the cross. We rejoice in it. Don't ever think you need anything or anyone more than Christ. We need no other prophets, priests, or kings. 
We need no popes. We need only, the, only Jesus, the Savior, and that is what Christ alone is all about. And lastly, letter B, notice that Paul's concern is for their faith in Christ alone, for their faith. And there's a whole other message we'll do on the essential nature of faith, but just to finish out this text real quick, he says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, believe it or not, there are many preachers today who are caught up in trying to be as eloquent and fancy and men-approved as they possibly can be today. All you got to do is get on Twitter and you'll see them. Harold and, Herod, Harold and Jared know about that. Sometimes i got to stay off Twitter. I just get too mad about it. But here's the reality. Paul didn't care about any of that. He didn't care if you thought he was a good speaker. He didn't care if you liked how he preached. He just brought the truth of Christ alone. Why? Because he wants their faith not in him but in Christ. And that truly is the detriment of the, the, the form of preaching that focuses on the preacher and the man, right? There are many Christians who are converted to a man and not to Christ. They love how a preacher preaches, so they only go to church because of that preacher. May we never be that. Christ is who has saved you. Christ is who we worship. And when man's, when, when man's preaching is entertaining and brings attention to himself, and that's what keeps the crowd, you understand that's where the people's attention is. It's on him, and it's not on Christ. And whatever people are one with, that's what you have to keep them with. If they're one with Christ, they'll stay with Christ. When we look at this, we're familiar with all these things. We must preach Christ alone and faith alone in him. And I agree with this final comment from James Montgomery Boyce. He has good words on this realm. He says, if, church, if our churches are not preaching this gospel, they're not preaching the gospel at all, and if they're not preaching the gospel, they are not true churches. And I believe the foundation of what is a true church is do they have the gospel right? Do they have the gospel they may be off on a few other things. You'll see that. But do they have the gospel right? And when we are faithful to the gospel, here's what we can do. We can rest and trust in our sovereign Lord to save sinners as he pleases. It's not up to us to make that happen. So Christ alone, solus Christus, though it was emphasized during the Reformation, it's always been the foundation of true Christianity from the time of the apostles up until today. So that is a pillar of his church, it is a pillar of our church, and may we always hold to that conviction and never veer off from Christ alone uh, as our message.